to Psalm 71. Psalm 71. Psalms, if you're wondering where it is, it is the easiest book in the Bible to find. Just turn your Bible to the halfway point, flip it open, uh, and you're going to find the book of Psalms, Psalm 71. We're going to be starting there. We're not going to be ending there, but uh, we are going to get ready for the Word of God this morning. Are you guys ready for the Word of God this morning? Fantastic, fantastic. We uh, are getting ready this morning for what's going to be a powerful, powerful addition to a series that we're doing here at Thrive. The series is called Greater. Everyone say Greater. Greater. It's because here at Thrive we believe that you were made for greater things. And that, in fact, this coming year, there is a greater version of yourself that wants to come out of you. It's a more resilient you. It's a wiser you. It's a more effective you. It's a more loving you. It's a more patient you. It's a, a more peaceful you. And that's what this series has been talking about, is how to step into that greater version of you that wants to come out this coming year. Have you had a, a, a helpful time in this series so far as we've been going through the series called Greater? Do I have a proactive church in this place this morning? Yeah? Okay. I, I, I've got, like, I, I think I've got a proactive church. I believe I've got a proactive church. Come on, give God a big shout in this place right now. Let me know that you're proactive this morning. All right. Because we're a proactive church, we're not afraid to sit in the front. Because we're a proactive church, we're not afraid to take notes during the sermon. Because we're a, a proactive church, we're not afraid to say amen. Everyone say amen. And if you say amen, you don't have to wait for me to say, if you believe it, say amen. You can just go ahead, and when something resonates with you, you can say amen. When you open up your heart that way, you will get so much more out of our time together. So I encourage you to do that, and we're going to be proactive together. Give, give, give your neighbor a high five and say, let's be proactive. Let's be proactive. And so let's go into the message right now. Psalm 71. Psalm 71. We're going to look at verse 18. Just one verse from there uh, before I take you somewhere else. Look at Psalm 71, verse 18. Could you read with me a big loud voice? What does it say? It says, even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. There's two gestures that we try to teach you during our message series called Greater. The first is this. Everyone go like this. Can everyone go like this? Okay, this is like the greater sign. Okay, why don't you do this to, why don't you just do that to your neighbor right now? I'm sure they won't be offended. Just do that right now. That's saying you're greater than me. All right? You're greater than me. All right? All right? Don't, don't do it this way. Say that, that, that's I'm greater than you. You want to do it this way. All right? Okay. How do you do uh, God is greater than me? How do you say God is greater than me? There you go. Okay, awesome, awesome. You guys are ready for some selfies and some photos already. And see, that's our first hand gesture. But there's another hand gesture that I'm going to encourage you to take on during this series. It's called taking notes. It's called not being afraid to underline your Bible, to mark up your Bible, or to highlight your Bible if you're using uh, a phone or a device. And there's one verse or one part of this verse that I want you to highlight right now. And that verse or that, that part of the verse is the next generation. Could you just underline that right now? The next generation. I want to say the next generation. Let's look at Psalm 78. If you have your Bible, just flip a few pages uh, or scroll just a little bit down to Psalm 78. We're going to read verses 4 to 7, and I want you to just read this in a big, loud voice with me. 1, 2, 3, it says, We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. If you have your Bibles in front of you, would you back, turn back to verse 4 of Psalm 78, and would you once again highlight those three important words, the next generation. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation. Everyone say the next generation. See, the message I'm here to tell you today is called a heart for the next generation. 
See, today, as we remember Remembrance Day, we're remembering the sacrifice of men and women who gave their lives because they were concerned about future generations. And I'm here to tell you today, as we look into 2018, 2019, is that the greater version of you that wants to rise up from you this coming year is a version of you that cares about the next generation. It's a version of you that isn't just all about you, your comfort, your happiness, your agenda, your pleasure, your convenience, but it's about how you can make an impact for the next generation after you. If you believe that, say amen. Whether it's in your family, or it's in your community, or it's in the organization where you serve, I'm here to tell you today, you can write this down, there is a next generation of people you are made to impact. Whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you think about it or not, the fact is this, God has placed a next generation of people for you to impact. It could be your kids. It could be a younger sibling or a younger relative in your family. It could be the next generation of leaders in your organization. It could be people in your school. It could be people in your church. It could be the members of your ministry team that you serve on. It could be friends of yours that you want to bring to church or you want to lead them to Jesus and they're not there yet. It's the next generation. I want to say the next generation. And my question for you this morning is this. How often do you think about the next generation? See, maybe the last thing that's on your mind right now is how to plan for future generations. You're thinking to yourself, JB, you don't have any idea what I'm going through right now. I've got enough problems of my own. I've got a mortgage to pay. I've got a loan to pay off. I, I've, I'm trying to figure out my career right now. There's a relationship in my life that's in shambles right now, and I'm trying to fix that. And I've got so much stuff to do. I've got exams to write. I've got, you know, papers to do. I've got a wedding to plan. I don't have time to be thinking about next generation. If that's you, then this message is for you. See, maybe at one time in your life you were really passionate about investing in the next generation, about impacting future generations, but maybe somewhere down the road you got really busy or you got distracted or you got discouraged or you got disappointed. If that's you, then this message is for you as well. See, why is it so important that you and I have a heart for the next generation? Let me give you two reasons why this morning. Number one, you can write this down. One reason why it's so important that you and I have a heart for the next generation is because life is miserable and meaningless when all you do is live for yourself. Have you ever had a dream while you were sleeping in bed where it felt so real that it actually affected the way that you lived and felt in real life? Has that ever happened to you before? You know, I, know, I know some, uh, some friends of mine who th they, 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 see it, they have a dream while they're sleeping and you know, maybe their husband or their wife uh, you know, does something bad in the dream. And so as well, when they wake up, they're really mad at the, the husband or wife, right? Even though they didn't actually do it. You know? uh, and, and, and see, like, I, I can tell you a couple dreams of mine. Uh, a couple months ago, I had a dream. And that dream was I was sleeping in bed and I was dreaming that I was playing soccer. I don't usually play soccer. But I was, pl I was playing soccer in this dream and I could see the opposing team kicking a ball toward me, and it's like kind of flying in midair. And so in my dream, I'm doing my best Ronaldo impression, and I kind of stretch out my leg to stop the ball. And little did I know that I was so into the dream that in real life, it, when, when, I'm, when, when in the dream I'm sticking out my foot, in real life I'm sticking out my foot. And in real life I'm, I'm raising my leg to the point where I actually fall off the bed. And I, I, I land on the floor, I hit my head on the dresser, I got a little scar as a result of it. It's because I was so into a dream that wasn't real, and yet I have a real scar to show from it. There, there was another time uh, when, uh, about 14 years ago, 
uh, when Charlene and I just got married, I remember we were living in Taiwan in a tiny, tiny apartment in a tiny, tiny bed that we shared. And uh, we were, you know, sleeping side by side. Uh, and there was one night when I'm, I'm, I'm sleeping and I have this dream. And this time I dreamt that I was playing rugby. You know rugby? You know rugby is it's kind of like American football. You've got this kind of this olive-shaped ball that you have to hold and you have to take it to the end zone and score. I, I was dreaming that I was playing rugby. And in this dream, like what I see is I am on one team and I see the ball has popped loose and it's on the ground and I'm the closest one to it. And in this dream, I pick up the ball and I start running to the end zone. I see guys all around who want to tackle me, and so I jump over them into the end zone, and I score. It was a glorious moment that's never ha actually happened in real life. And, and I, I just did that. And then little did I know that as I'm dreaming this dream, in the dream, when I'm picking up this ball, I've got this stuffed bear on our bed. We call him Booby. Don't ask me why we call him Booby, but his name is Booby. That's what Char gave him the name. And, and I, 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 I'm, as I'm picking up the ball, I, I, I'm holding Booby in my arms in real life. And then as I'm running down the field in this dream, in real life, I'm getting up from the bed. And then as I'm in the dream approaching these men who are about to tackle me and I'm jumping over, in real life, I get up from the bed with booby in my arms and I jump and I land on Charlene. <laughs> and she wakes up and says, what? What, what? What's wrong? What's wrong? And I, I kind of hurt her as a result. And, and I was like, I scored. I scored. And, and she's like, you did not score at all. That's, that, that's the thing is that she was kind of like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, man, it was just a dream. It was, turn around and say, it was a dream. And see, why do I mention that? Is have you ever had a dream that seemed real but was not? But yet, in following that fake dream, you actually have real scars to show for it. Or you have real hurts that you've inflicted on others because you were pursuing that fake dream. Why do I mention that? It's because there is a fake lying dream that many of us today are tempted to pursue. It's the dream that says, life is all about me. It's the thing that, 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 that keeps people up at night thinking, you know, the purpose of my life is just to be happy. It's about my power, my popularity, my pleasure, my uh, you know, prestige, my position, my prosperity. And, and yet when we pursue that dream as our number one goal in life, it only leaves us hurt and hurting others in the process. And see, can I get a good amen from that? Amen. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1 to 11. I want you to turn to that right now. And this is one example of one person called Solomon. Everyone say Solomon. He's the king of Israel, and he's pursuing this fake lying dream about how it's all about him, and this is how he puts it. Would you read it with me? Ecclesiastes 2, 1 to 11. Read with me in a big, loud voice. Let the way you read verse 11 be the same as the way you read verse 1. Read it with me in a big, loud voice. 1, 2, 3, it says, I thought in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good, but that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the first few days of their lives. I understood, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women's 
singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was a reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You see, there's one word in these first 11 verses of chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes that comes up over and over and over again, and you want to pay attention to it. And you know what word that is? The word is myself. Myself. Look back at verse 3 with me. It says, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. Look at verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. Everyone say, for myself. And in fact, if you're reading the NIV, which is a translation we often use, it actually downplays how much it talks about myself. If you look at older versions, if you look at the original Hebrew, myself comes up even more. Look at verse 5. In the original Hebrew, it says, I made for myself uh, gardens and parks. You know, in, in, uh, in verse 6, it says, I made for myself reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. In verse 7, it says, I bought for myself, you know, male and female slaves. In, and, and, you know, verse, uh, verse 8, it says, I, I amassed silver and gold for myself. And see, in, in, in verse 10, it says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. See, what's going on is that Solomon is the king of Israel. And he is pursuing this fake lying dream that every single one of us will be tempted at some point in our lives to pursue, which is that it's all about me. It's all about how, what makes me happy. It's all about my power, my convenience, my position, my dreams. It's all about that. And yet the lesson we learn from Solomon is this. Look at verse 11. It says, after pursuing all these things for himself, verse 11 says, read it with me. It says, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I toiled to achieve, Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. See, what's the lesson here? The lesson of Ecclesiastes 2 is that when you live for nothing and no one but yourself, when it's all about your happiness, your comfort, your status, your position, your power, life becomes miserable. Life becomes meaningless. Life stops having purpose. And yet on the other hand, when you use what you have, not just to help yourself, but to help those around you, especially those coming after you, life takes on a greater meaning. Life takes on a greater purpose. Life takes on a greater joy than there was before. If you believe that, say amen. 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 You know, maybe if you had to be really honest with yourself today, that though you are here sitting in church, apparently here to worship God, if you had to be honest about the general trajectory of your life and the way you live day to day, who are you worshiping, yourself or are you worshiping God? If you, like Solomon, can say, you know, it's really about myself, then the fact is, don't be surprised if life is more frustrating than it was meant to be. If life is more miserable than it's meant to be, it's time to gain a heart for the next generation. Amen. Amen. Reason number two that you need to heart for the, the, the next generation is this. Write this down. God made you to impact generations. He made you to impact generations. Exodus 3, 15 says it this way. It says, God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I'm to be remembered from generation to generation. Everyone say from generation to generation. See, when you read scripture, one of the things you're going to find about God is that God thinks generationally. 
is that in other words, when God sees you, he doesn't just see you in isolation. He doesn't just see the, the 60, 70, 80, 100 years that you have on this earth. But when God sees you, he sees how you are connected with the generations that came before you and how you're connected with the generations that come after you. In other words, it doesn't start with you and it doesn't end with you in God's eyes. And now I want you to notice in Exodus 3, 15, at the very beginning, God says to Moses, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Three generations, one after another. What does that tell you about God? Is that God thinks generationally. Is that he's coming to Moses, who's you know, a generation, many generations after you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, I want to do a new thing in your generation. It's because God is a God with a heart for the next generation. He's, a, he's got a heart to see future generations better off than we are. And so much of, so you're, you might be here today, and you might be wondering, you know, why am I going through some of the problems I'm going through right now? Can I tell you this today? So much of what you are going through today is because God has future generations in mind. Every blessing that you have in your hand, every problem you're going through right now, every lesson you are learning, every talent that you have, every dream in your heart, God allows every single one of them, not just because it's about you and the 80, 90, 100 years you have on this earth, but it's because he's got a future generation in mind. Could it be that God is allowing you to go through the struggle you're going through right now so that you have a story to tell the next generation? Could it be that you are going through this problem right now, not because God is cruel, not because God is not there, not because God is not working, but because God wants you to go through the struggle so the next generation doesn't have to go through that struggle. It's because God is a God who cares about the next generation. Everyone say the next generation. Look at John chapter 17, verse 20 and 21 with me. Read in a big, loud voice. What does it say? It says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, who's praying here? His name is Jesus. You know, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Jesus when he was at the Garden of Gethsemane. He's getting ready to be betrayed, arrested. He's getting ready to be tried on crimes he didn't commit. He's getting ready to get crucified on a cross. And we saw him in the Garden of Gethsemane praying and saying, God, please take away this cup from me. But guess what? John gives his version of what happened. And he tells us that Jesus wasn't just praying for himself on that day. On that day, in that same garden, Jesus was praying for future generations. He was praying not just for himself, he was praying for his disciples, and he was praying for future believers after him. Jesus was praying for you at the Garden of Gethsemane. Look at verse 20, it says, my prayer is not for them, that's the disciples alone, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. On that night in the garden, the night before Jesus was, be, was going to be going to the cross, Jesus prayed for you. And see, he's praying for future generations of believers. It's because Jesus has future generations in mind. It's one of the reasons why Jesus is the greatest leader to ever walk the face of this earth. It's the reason why Jesus made a bigger impact than any other leader who's ever lived. It's because Jesus had a heart for next generation. You may be you're working really hard in your business right now. You're slaving away at what you do. But let me tell you this. If you don't have a heart for the next generation, if you don't invest in the next generation, it all is going to go away after one generation. And see, that's why 
you need to have a heart for the next generation because God made you not just to make a difference in one generation. He made you to impact generation after generation. If you believe it, come on, give God a big hand in your place right now. Amen. And that means if you really want to be like Jesus, if you want to be effective like Jesus was effective, if you want to have a heart like Jesus has a heart, then it means having a heart for the next generation. If God made you to impact the next generation, if the greater version of you is that version that cares about the next generation, then how do you develop a heart for the next generation? We're going to talk about that right now. See, God can use anyone to impact the next generation. You don't need to be cool. You don't have to be a good dresser. You don't have to be charismatic. You don't have to be super extroverted. But you do need these three things we're going to be talking about this morning. If you can write them down, that would really be helpful for you. Number one, experience God's love in your life. If you want to have a heart for the next generation, it begins with experiencing God's love in your life. See, you can't give what you don't have. And if you want to be someone who's making a difference in the next generation, in the way that God made you to make that difference, it's about you experiencing God's love in your life first. Because you can't give what you don't have. Look at 1 John 4, 9 to 11 with me. And let's read in a big, loud voice. What does it say? It says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Keep on going to verse 19. What does it say? It says, we love because he first loved us. Hey, church, I know it's Remembrance Day. I know it's a bit of a somber day. But we've done our remembrance. We've done our tribute. Now it's time to worship Jesus. Amen? Amen? Guess what? Jesus is greater than the grave. Therefore, we have every reason to celebrate him on every day of our lives. And so right now, what I'm getting from in terms of proactivity is probably about 2% of what I expect from my church. Amen? Amen? And so I want you to do this right now. I want you to read this verse one more time. I want, to read, I want you to read it in, with a proactive, with a loud, out loud attitude because we're here, we're alive, we're expectant, we're involved, we're out loud, we're united. Read that with me right now. What does it say? It says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Keep on going. We love because he first loved us. Praise God you guys are awake this morning. Okay. All right. Come on. Give God a big hand here in this place right now. You got to help me preach in this place this morning. What we're going to do this morning, I want to tell you, if you want to have a heart for the next generation, it's about learning to experience God in your life first. Today, for some reason, I just really felt like I need to share a story with you that is very, very crucial to my testimony as a Christian. It's very actually crucial to us being here as a, as a church as well. And it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a story that I will share about once a year. In fact, I keep track of how often I share it because I don't want to share it too often for those of you who've heard it, but I want to share it with people enough where we're new people coming in that they know the story as well. The last time I shared it was in August of 2017, so I keep track. But see, this is uh, a story about me growing up. When I was growing up, I was uh, a very, very fat boy. Very, very fat boy. People called me in Mandarin Xiaopeng. Everyone say Xiaopeng. If you're wondering what Xiaopeng means, it means small, fat boy. 
I did not know that at the time. I, don't, I didn't speak Mandarin until I was about 25 years old. So when I was 8, 9, 10 years old, I would go to the barber shop with my dad in Chinatown. Uh, I guess he thought the best barber cuts or the, the, the haircuts or the cheapest haircuts were, were in Chinatown. So he'd take me to Chinatown. I, we'd, go to the, we'd go to the barber, and the barber would always greet me the same way in Mandarin. He'd have his scissors here, and he'd go, Hey, Xiaopang! Xiaopang! And, and I'd be, I have no idea what he just said. And, and, and he just came, he cut my hair, and it's got a bit, it was a bit of awkward beginning, but he cut my hair, I'd leave. And then every time he'd be like, hey, Xiaopang! And, and you know, after that, you know, I'd, I'd leave. And there's finally there's one day when I was like, really just kind of, what does he mean by Xiaopang? And so I, I, would, I would be walking down the sidewalk with my dad, and I, my dad would be like, like I, my dad and I would be walking down the sidewalk. I would ta- I asked my dad, Dad, like, he keeps calling me Xiaopang. What does Xiaopang mean? And then he's like, thinking about it a bit. He's walking down. I guess he didn't want to hurt my feelings. And so he'd, he said, son, you know, uh, Xiaopang means, Xiaopang uh, means, Xiaopang um, uh, means, it, it means you're, it means you're very handsome, okay? It means you're very handsome. And, and I was like, oh, okay. And so the next time I'd go into the, to the, the barber shop and be like, hey, Xiaopang. I'd be, oh, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. You too. You are Xiaopang too. And, I, I, and it's, it's because I had no idea what he's talking about. And the fact is, is when I later learned what Xiaopang meant, I didn't care that much when I was 8, 9, 10 years old. But l- later on in life, when I became an adolescent, when I became a teenager, I started to care a lot. I started to care a lot about the way that I looked. You know, I would you know, look at myself in the mirror, and I did not like what I saw because I did not feel secure in who I was because I didn't like the way that I looked. I had very little confidence. I was very self-consumed a lot of times. I found that the only way for me to get out of this funk, or try to at least, was to exercise a lot, was to eat healthy. And so every single day during grades 9, 10, 11, and 12, I would run an hour on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I think there's one year when I ran about 100 miles in one year. And it's because I was so keen on losing weight. I would eat healthy, or what I thought was healthy. I would count calories all the time. I would you know, make sure I didn't eat any fried food. I was always eating you know, vegetables and, and, and fruit. And, and you know, what was happening was as if, if, you, if you looked at my school yearbook from grade 9 all through grade 12, and you kind of put all my pictures back to back to back and did a flip book, it would look like this guy is shrinking. Like, I, I was getting skinnier and skinnier and skinnier and skinnier. And the fact is this, the more I looked at myself in the mirror, the more I liked the way that I looked. I was like, hey, good-looking guy. But here's the thing. Even though on the outside things, things seemed to be getting better, on the inside there was something very, very unhealthy that was going on. Which is that if there was ever a day when I didn't exercise, if there was ever a day when I didn't eat healthy the way I thought I should, healthy, I, I should eat healthy, in the nighttime there would be this tremendous sense of guilt that would take, take me over. There would be this tremendous sense of shame that would take me over to the point where sometimes in the middle of the night, I have this urge to go and run outside right there and then because it just consumed me. And all of a sudden, for some reason, my happiness, my self-worth became dependent on little superficial things like, did I eat 2,000 calories today? Or did I exercise an hour today? How much fat can I pinch off of my stomach? How, much, how thin does my face feel today? I don't know if I would uh, you know, categorize it as an eating disorder to that extent, but it was a major issue where all of a sudden my self-worth, my confidence, my happiness was based on these very superficial things. And see, and, and see what ended up happening was you know, there was a friend in my life who knew about this issue. And he said, JB, can I encourage you to really pray about this issue? Because I was like, you know, it's, it's, I, I know it's probably not that healthy for me to think this way, but that's the way I am. And he's like, no, can you pray about this? In fact, I'm going to encourage you to fast and pray about this. And when he said fast and pray, I thought to myself, fasting, yeah, I can lose more weight. 
But he said, no, no, you want to fast and pray. And so, you know, I, there's that part of me that even though I knew that my strategy of losing weight was working, I knew that at the same time there was something unhealthy going on on the inside of me. So I decided, you know what, okay, I, I'm going to do something about this. And so there, I, it, was, it was the summer after grade 12. I'd already graduated from high school. And, you know, I you know, decided, you know, for one week, for five days, while I'm working at the summer job at this office, that I was going to spend time just praying about this issue. Just like my friend had recommended that I would. And that in l- at the lunchtime, during the lunch hour, I just wouldn't eat. I would just kind of pray and read my Bible. And so that's what I did. I remember I thought to myself at, at the beginning of the week, I hope something happens. Or I think maybe something good will happen out of that. I remember day one, I opened my, my Bible in the lunchroom, and I, I was praying a little bit. And nothing happened on that day. I thought, okay, that's fine. Day two, I go into the same room. I open up my Bible. I pray, nothing happens. Day three, I open up my Bible. Nothing happens. Day four, I go into the same lunchroom. I open my Bible. I pray, still nothing happens. Finally, day five. Day five comes around, and it's the last day of my fast. I go into the lunchroom. I open up my Bible. I pray, and still nothing happens. And at the end, I was like, oh, thank you, friend. That helped a lot. But the fact was this, is I went back home, or not back home, but I went back to my, my, my office or my cubicle where I was working away at some documents. And as I'm working away that afternoon, you know, I, I start to get this really strong sense in me as if someone is saying to me, JB, go to the washroom and look at yourself in the mirror. JB, go to the washroom and look at yourself in the mirror. And when I thought that, I was like, that, I was like man, that's crazy talk, man. I, I must be just hallucinating because I haven't eaten lunch today. And, and I was kind of trying to push it away. But, you know, after about two, three hours, the sense in me to say, JB, go to the washroom and look yourself in the mirror got stronger and stronger and stronger to the point where I couldn't really focus on anything anymore. And so finally I decided, you know, what do I have to lose? I put my pen down. I went outside to where there's a shared office washroom with these other offices. I go out into the hallway. I go into the washroom. There's no one in the washroom. I go and I, you know, I just basically go to the washroom and I just look at myself in the mirror. And as I'm looking at myself in the mirror, that same voice, if you call it that, that same sense in me that was, you know, was talking to me at that moment that, sa- that said, JB, go to the washroom, look yourself in the mirror. As I'm looking at myself in the mirror, all of a sudden the sense I get is, is saying, it's as if someone's saying to me, JB, from the moment you were born to the moment when you lost all that weight to the moment till now, I have never stopped loving you. I have never stopped loving you. And it's kind of like, JB, through every season of your life, when you were fat, when you were skinny, through every different change that's happened to you, my love for you has never changed. And, and you know, for some reason, you know, I, I'd grown up going to church about and hearing about you know, how God loves you, his love's unconditional, all that stuff. But for some reason, on that morning or on that afternoon, when I'm in that washroom looking myself in the mirror and I sense, that, sense God saying to me, JB, I've loved you from the very beginning. I've never stopped loving you. My love for you has never changed. When that, you know, when that word hit my heart, all of a sudden I started to cry. And it wasn't just like a, like a, like a, like a whimper. It was a big cry. There was like practically a puddle on the ground. There was so much, there was so much crying. And you know, I don't know why God decided to speak to me in that way, in that format. But I can say this, is that the next day, if there was a day when I didn't eat super healthy food, or if there was a day when I, you know, didn't exercise, all of a sudden, it was okay now. All of a sudden, it didn't matter so much 
anymore. It's all of a sudden, it, but my happiness is no longer built upon how much fat can I pinch off of my stomach? How much, you know, how thin does my face feel today? It's because I knew that my worth was based not on any of those things. It's based on who God is, his love, his unconditional love for me, and that is what defines me, and therefore I can be confident, I can be happy, I can be secure no matter what. Come on, give God a big hand. You're in this place right now. That is the love of God as I experienced it on that day. And like I said, I don't know why God decided to do things in that way. But I know that because of that, my life has never been the same again. And it just goes to show that there's nothing like the love of God when you experience it. Amen. Amen. And, and, and I want to tell you this today. Maybe you're here today and you are going through something similar where you question your worth all the time. You question whether your life matters. You question whether you're loved by anyone. You question whether you are precious to anyone. Can I tell you this? You matter to God. That you are greatly loved by a God who loves you, not based on your performance, but because his love for you is unchanging. His love for you through all the changes and seasons of your life, through all the ups and downs, through every high and low, his love for you does not change. And how do I know that? It's not simply because I had that experience in a washroom. It's not simply because it sounds good to say it. It's because 2,000 years before we ever tried reaching for God, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, to rise again from the grave, to show us that his love is truly unconditional for you and for me. Come on, give God a big hand, big shout in this place together right now. Amen. And that was the first thing I learned from that experience, that God's love for you is not based on your performance. And you know, I'm not against exercising. I exercise often. I'm not against eating healthy. I think it's important to, you know, try to take good care of your body. But praise God, those things don't define your happiness. And they don't define your worth. And they don't do for me either. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. You know, there's a second thing I learned from that experience is this, is that when you experience God's love in your life, that's the beginning of having a heart for the next generation. See, I, you, I, I found this, is that around the same time that I was experiencing God in these very personal, powerful ways in my life, it was around that same time that I started dreaming, you know, wouldn't it be awesome if there could be an amazing church that could rise up in the city of Vancouver where people could experience God's love in a powerful way this way? And, uh, you know, and, and I don't mean to say, oh, yeah, we, we put up a, a big mirror, you know, and, and, and everyone looks at the mirror. And wait, you know, and, but in fact, actually, that's what we do. How many of us know that the book of James says that God's word is a mirror? And that whenever we look at the mirror called the word of God, we're, we're reminded once again of who we are and who God is. And, and that's what we do here at Thrive Church. And it was during that time that I started to think of, you know, oh, I started to dream about, you know, what if there was a church that could rise up from this city where people could experience the love of God in a powerful way. And, and I want to tell you this today because maybe you're here today and you lack a heart for the next generation. You're not thinking about the next generation. And could it be it's because you need to experience God's love in your life? It's because what you're lacking is an experience of God's love in your life. You matter to God. You know, I find this is that your vertical relationship with God hugely impacts your horizontal relationships with people. When my relationship with God is strong, it's natural to have a heart for the next generation. It's natural to think about how I can serve others. When my relationship with God is weak, it's natural to have no heart for the next generation. 
it's natural to, to just keep thinking about myself and just kind of like a turtle, just kind of climb up in my little shell and just focus on me because your vertical relationship with God has everything to do with your horizontal relationship with God. And so if you're here in this place and you lack a heart for the next generation, one of the best things you can do is to come to church and experience the love of God. Amen. It's one of the best things you can do is to read your Bible and experience the love of God. One of the best things you can do is go to small group and experience the love of God. One of the best things you can do is pray and experience the love of God. One of the best things you can do is even in your worst moment today, with your worst moment this week, is to come to God just as you are and worship God and invite him to work in your life because when you do, you'll experience the love of God and in so doing, you will eventually gain a heart for the next generation. If you believe that, give God a big hand and this shout in this place right now. I said give God a big hand and a big shout in this place right now. Come on, church. It begins with experiencing God in your life. Number two, if you want to gain a heart for the next generation, it's about expanding your vision for the next generation. Expanding your vision. See, how many of us know that what you see determines how you lead? What you see determines how you lead. If your vision for someone in your life, whether it's your husband or your wife or your kid or your team at work, if what you see is small and all you see is someone who's selfish, someone who's lazy, someone who's weak, someone who's entitled, it will come out in the way that you treat that person. It's because how you lead is determined by what you see. You're not going to give that person many chances because you've already given up on them anyways. You're not going to invest very much in them because you don't think there's, in, there's anything worth investing in. You'll do nothing to set up that person for success. It's because how you lead is determined by what you see. And see, remember Solomon? We talked about Solomon earlier. Solomon was known historically as the wisest king Israel had ever known. And early in Solomon's reign, Solomon loved God. He trusted God, and with that love came a real heart for the next generation. In fact, when you read the book of Proverbs, and you, you, you read page after page of Solomon talking about preparing the next generation, he'll say stuff like, you know, my son, keep my commands, store up my teachings within you so that it'll prolong your life many years. What is he doing? He's setting up the next generation for success. He has a heart for the next generation. But see, after a season of loving God, and a season of investing in the next generation, Solomon got distracted. Instead of focusing on investing in people, later on in life, he poured himself into possessions, into prosperity, into pleasure, into projects, into power. He started to focus on living for himself, just like we read in Ecclesiastes 2. And in fact, what he would do is he would give his heart away to different women who didn't follow the Lord. And whereas the, the word of God says a king should not have many wives lest he be led astray, he did exactly that. He had many wives, hundreds of wives, hundreds of concubines. At the end of the day, he was led astray to worship things other than God. And in losing his heart for God, what happened is he lost his heart for the next generation. I want you to look at Ecclesiastes 2, 17 to 21 with me. Could you read in a big, loud voice? What does it say? This is Solomon talking again. What does he say? So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I told for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. 
and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the work into which I've poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. And so my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. See what's going on. Solomon at one time was hot for God. He was hot for the next generation. He even wrote a whole book on preparing the next generation. Since that time, since that time, he leaves, the, he leaves his faith. He worships other things, his possessions, his power, his prosperity, his pleasure. He worships those things. He loses his heart for God. He loses his heart for the next generation. And all of a sudden, what's he doing? He's complaining about his life. Oh, I hate my life. Oh, I hate my work. And the most meaningless part of it all for him is after working so hard at what he's been doing, after building up his kingdom, now he feels like he has to leave it to the next generation, and he has no idea, is this person going to be wise? Is this person going to be a fool? I have no idea, and I don't care. It's all meaningless to me. See, what happened there? You see, because Solomon lost his heart for God, he lost his vision for the next generation. And in losing his vision for the next generation, you know what would happen? He would lose his kingdom eventually as well. In just a few years after Solomon gives up his throne and hands it over to his son, Rehoboam, in a single day, due to foolish decisions that Solomon could have helped his son avoid making, his son Rehoboam would end up losing over 80% of his kingdom in one day. In one day. It's because Solomon did not have a heart for the next generation. And so he didn't prepare the next generation for success. And as a result, his kingdom suffered. He would suffer. His reputation suffered. His children after him would suffer. And generation after generation would never really fully recover from the lack of a heart for the next generation. What's the lesson we can learn from that? The lesson is this. The wrong vision for the next generation can be devastating. If you don't have the right vision for the next generation, it can be devastating to them. It could be devastating to you. I've seen that happen firsthand, how a vision that is way too small for a person can limit that person from stepping into the greater version that God made them to be. I've seen it firsthand, how the wrong vision for a person can destroy a young person and keep them from God's purpose for their life. But I've also seen firsthand how when you have the right vision, when you've got an empowering vision, when you've got an expanded vision for a person's life, you can catapult that person to doing greater things than they ever thought possible. It's the power of vision. Amen. And that's why here at Thrive, we try to put in front of you the biggest, grandest, most expansive vision that we can dream of. What is that vision? The vision is simply that here at Thrive Church, we exist for five purposes called A-E-I-O-U. A stands for alive. It means we're here to worship Jesus. E stands for expected. It means we're here to grow into Christ-like disciples. I stands for involved. It means we're here to serve God with our talents. O stands for out loud. It means we're here to lead others to Jesus. U stands for united. It means we're here to love our spiritual family and our dream is to build a church of 10,000 AEIU leaders in the city of Vancouver. Come on, give God a big hand and big shout in this place right now. You know, I think I speak on behalf of all of our staff, on behalf of every small group leader, on behalf of every serving team leader. I want to say that we believe in this vision. And we believe in it so much that we have ordered our lives around it. We've sacrificed for it. 
we believe that more than uh, you know, a great business or great electronics company or a great law firm or a great bubble tea restaurant, that what Vancouver needs more than anything else is an awesome church to impact our city. And you know, as your pastor, let me say to all of you today, from the youngest of you to the oldest of you, because all of you are the next generation. In fact, I, I, regardless of your age, if you came to this church after I did, then you, for me, you are the next generation. And, and the fact is this, my heart and my dream for you as your pastor is that you would take all that we do here at Thrive, the preaching, the teaching, the reaching out, the disciple-making, the greeting, the baptizing, the music, the arts, the multimedia, the missions, the Thrive Kids Ministry, that you would take all the things that we do here at Thrive and you would take every single one of them to another level in the next generation is that you and I together, we believe and dream that God can do greater things than we've ever seen him do so far. And that's why, you know, I, I love it one day, you know, our, our, our church had its own worship albums. I, I love it one day we have a team of, of, of preachers and teachers who can go not just here but across our city and across the nation to make difference and make an impact for the next generation. It's because we believe with God all things are possible. Amen. And, and if you're the next generation today, and, and, and you are, it's time to expand your vision for yourself. Don't just settle for the vision of, oh, yeah, I just, I just go to church on Sundays. Yeah, I just listen to a sermon. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll serve maybe, you know, from time to time. But see, you were made for something greater. You, you were made to be part of a team that's here to build a church of 10,000 AEI, AEI leaders in the city of Vancouver. 50 years from now, what do you want people to say about your life? Oh, yeah, you know, he had a very comfortable life. They, they skied a lot, you know. They, they, they want a lot of vacations. You know, they're, they're, they're very happy that way. They had a comfortable life. Oh, yeah, they, they built this, 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 great, uh, this great business. You know, you know what? For me, 50 years from now, I would love it for people to say, you know what? God used this person, and he used this family, and he used this church to do amazing things in our city for Jesus. Because when it comes to Jesus and the impact on a future generation, nothing compares to what Jesus can do if you believe us say amen. Amen. Come on, give God a big hand, a big shout in this place together right now. The fact is this. When Jesus says, how can the blind lead the blind? What he's saying is, you can't lead if you don't see. It's about your vision. Everyone say, my vision. If you want to impact the next generation, it's about expanding your vision. You might be, you know, in the midst of parenthood right now, and you're, you're changing diapers right now. You can say, you know, I'm not just, don't just say, oh, I'm just changing this crying baby's diaper again. Oh, man. You know, but you can say, you know, I'm changing the diaper of the next great leader in the kingdom of God. I'm changing the diaper of this next great AEIU leader who's going to make a difference in his generation and generations to come. It's about expanding your vision. Turn your say, expand your vision. Amen. Lastly, we're going to close today. If you want to gain a heart for the next generation, is express your heart for the next generation through encouraging words and sacrificial service. Express your heart for the next generation through encouraging words and sacrificial service. You know, one of the most important things that I do as a dad every night with my two boys now, with Bradley and with Caleb, is we'll all get together in our room, the four of us, and it, we're just about, about time they're about to go to bed, I'll put my you know, hand on, on one of their heads usually and, and maybe just reach out to the other one another way. And, and we'll say, okay, let's pray together, guys. And I'll say, dear Jesus, thank you that Bradley and Caleb are happy, healthy, wise, strong, loving, obedient to God, obedient to their parents, and brave. May they continue to grow in all of these ways. That is my vision for them. 
and, and see, what, what, I, what am I doing is this, is I'm expressing that vision. I'm expressing it through encouraging words. And, and just praise God, you know, even on days when maybe Bradley, you know, is maybe not as, uh, you know, as obedient as we'd like him to be, I'll still say on that same night, thank you that Bradley and Caleb are happy, healthy, wise, strong, loving, obedient to God, obedient to and brave. May they continue growing all these ways. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Or if Caleb is not as healthy on one day as, you know, we, we want him to be, I'll still say thank you, God, that Caleb is happy, healthy, wise, strong, loving, obedient to God, obedient to and brave. May he continue growing all these ways. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What is that? It's because my vision for them doesn't change with the seasons. My vision for them doesn't de de depend on the circumstances. My vision is going to be expressed through those encouraging words. Why do I mention that? It's because when God gives you a vision, you need to express it. You need to express it. I want to say express it. Unless you express it, there's no power. Vision left alone does nothing. But vision expressed through words can change everything. And that's why you want to express your vision. Proverbs 18, 21 says it this way. Read it with me in a big loud voice. What does it say? It says, the tongue has the power of life and death. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Let me ask you this. When you talk to the next generation, when you talk about the next generation, how encouraging are your words? Do your words bring life or do they bring death? Do they, bring, do they build people up or do they tear people down? See, it's about learning to express your words and express your vision by being as encouraging as you can. Because how many of you guys know being an encourager doesn't begin with what you say. It begins with what you see. Amen. It begins with your vision. Expressing your heart to the next generation is not just about the words you speak, though. It's also about the way we serve. Last verse today, we're going to close. What does Mark chapter 10, verse 45 say? Could you read it with me in a big, loud voice? Let's say it together. One, two, three. It says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, I don't know about you, but I know that I would not be here today if it weren't for people in a previous generation who cast a vision for my life through the words that they spoke and the way that they served. You know, whether it's my parents who insisted that we go to church every single Sunday, even when I didn't want to go. Or it's Sunday school teachers who sacrificed their Sunday morning to be with a stubborn kid like me. Or youth fellowship or youth group advisors, camp counselors who gave up their Saturday night to spend time creating a place where teens could find the love of God and the Christian community. Or it's my pastors who preached the word of God, who baptized us, who, who taught us how to pray, who established a church family that we could call home and grow. Or, you know, it's, it's leaders in my life who are older than me who spoke into my life and said, hey, you can do this. This is something that I can see you doing. You can be a pastor. You can do this. You can do that. And, and it was their words and their sacrificial service that could encourage me to be someone that I never thought I could be. Mentors who gave me advice, who corrected me, who rebuked me when I did things wrong. So, you know, young people have a huge capacity to dream. But what every person needs is someone a little bit older, a little bit wiser, a little bit more experienced to come alongside and to say, you can do this. This is possible. Maybe you're here today and you realize you would not be here today if it weren't for someone older than you who invested in you. You know, today, don't underestimate the impact you can have on the next generation just through your encouraging words and your sacrificial service. Maybe you're here today and you find that you have had a heart for the next generation, but you've been disappointed, you've been disillusioned, you've been frustrated at the results. Maybe you did the best you could to invest in that person, but it didn't quite work out the way that you hoped. Maybe you're having a difficult time with this one particular person right now and going, man, why is it so tough with you? And it, it, your, your vision is being tested. Your heart is being tested for this next generation. Can I tell you this? 
you got to remember this. No one ever said investing in next generation was easy. Investing in next generation sounds very sexy at first, but when you actually start doing it for a while, you'll realize it's hard work. Tell me to say it's hard work. It's hard work that people uh, can find difficult because people can be difficult. People can be unpredictable. But let me tell you this. If that's you today, don't give up. Don't give up because there's nothing greater. There's nothing more worthwhile that you can do with your life than have a heart for the next generation. Maybe it just means giving it a little bit more time. Maybe it means it's trying a different approach. But whatever the case may be, don't give up. Aren't you glad that when we were at our worst, Jesus never gave up on us? He never gave up on us. Likewise, think to yourself, if that person, that next generation person that I'm trying to invest in, if Jesus was willing to die for that person and never give up on that person, then they must be worth investing in somehow. They must be worth not giving up on. I might change my approach, but I'm not going to give up. Praise God. If you want to gain a heart for the next generation, it's about experiencing God's love because you can't give what you don't have. It's about expanding your vision because you can't lead when you don't see. It's about expressing your heart through sacrificial service and encouraging words because you can't impact unless you serve. And so with that in mind, with that kind of heart for the next generation, I invite you to step into the greater version that God made for our church to be, the greater version that God made you and me to be. Could you give God a big hand, a big shout in this place together right now for the sake of the next generation? Would you stand to your feet? Would you turn your neighbors on your right and your left? Would you give them a high five and just say, I want a heart for the next generation. Can you tell them that right now? I want a heart for the next generation. I'm going to ask the worship team to lead us in the song. After that, I'm lead you in prayer. Let's do that together. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to lead you in a chance to respond to God through prayer right now. Today, we're talking about having a heart for the next generation. That the greater version of you is not simply a more grateful you. It's not simply a more peaceful you. It's not simply a more persevering you. But it's a you that is invested not in yourself, but in the next generation. That it's a you that's invested believing that God made you to make a difference in the lives of people coming after you. And if you're here today and you realize that you need a greater heart for the next generation, I'm just going to invite you just to raise your hand to God today. And we're just going to pray with you and for you. Believe that God wants to use you to make an impact, not just in your generation, but for generations to come. Would you just raise your hand to heaven right now? Don't even wait for me to count to three. Just start raising your hand to heaven right now. If you want a greater heart for the next generation, just start talking to God right now in your own words from your heart. Just give to God this time from your own words and in your own heart. Just start talking to God right now. Don't worry about your neighbors saying, you use your voice and you start talking to God right now. I'm gonna lead you in prayer after that. Just start talking to God right now in this place. Heavenly Father, I wanna thank you so much. It. Just start talking to God, church. Talk to Him from your heart this morning. He loves you. He's listening. You matter to Him. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Praise your name. Praise you, God. Praise you, Father. Praise you, God. Why don't you pray this prayer with me? Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for showing me today that this life is not just about me. It's about what you're doing from generation to generation. Just as you have a heart for the next generation, 
I pray I would have a heart for the next generation. That I would experience your love. That I would expand my vision. And that express my heart through the way I speak and the way I serve. Thank you that you made me to impact generations. Use me, God, to impact the next generation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Would you give Jesus a big hand, a big shout in this place together right now? Finally, if you've never received Jesus Christ into your life before, we want to give you an opportunity to do so. Maybe you're here today and you've questioned how much you matter to God. And we're here to let you know today that beyond a shadow of a doubt, you matter to God. That God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. If you want to receive Jesus into your life, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, it's as simple as praying a prayer to receive him into your life. We want to lead you in doing that right now. I invite you to pray this prayer with me. In fact, those of you who prayed this prayer before, why don't you pray it in support of those who are praying for the first time. If you want to receive Jesus Christ into your life, why don't you raise your hand to heaven right now. Just raise it as a response to God, as a way to say, God, I want to experience your love in my life. I want to receive your love in your life. I want to receive your forgiveness. With your hand raised to heaven, why don't you pray this prayer with me right now and say, Dear Jesus, thank you that I matter to you, that you love me, that you died on the cross to pay for my sins that you rose again to give me life. Today, I receive you into my life. Please forgive my sins and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. The Bible says if you pray that prayer, you are a child of God. You are forgiven of your sins. The best is yet to come. So give God a big hand, a big shout in this place right now. Come on.